Thanks for your interest in Emmanuel Baptist. Here at Emmanuel, we believe in the one and only authoritative text for guidance, the Holy Bible. We pray that this sermon will speak to your heart and open your eyes to the glory of God. Make sure you plug into your local church and get to know others that love the Holy Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, just like you. Thanks again, and God bless you guys. Well, the story is told of uh, two boys who are best friends together, maybe 10, 11, 12 years old, and one was a Baptist and one was a Catholic. And the Baptist boy attended the Catholic service with his friend, and he was all dropped with, and, and filled with awe of what was happening in that service. Every time the priest did something or said something, he'd poke his friend and say, what does that mean? That's Catholic friend would kind of describe what the priest was doing and what it meant. But when the Catholic boy came to the Baptist service with his friend, he didn't see anything he didn't understand. Until the preacher got up to preach, he took off his watch and laid it on the pulpit, and his Catholic boy poked his friend and says, what does that mean? And the Baptist boy says, oh, that doesn't mean anything. That was a joke. You guys didn't get it. Okay. <laughs> what does it mean? Now you're getting it because I had to tell you to laugh. Oh, man, it's terrible. Those on Facebook laugh. I can hear them laugh. You could, okay. We're beginning here at Act 5 of the cosmic drama, uh, the church. There are three main events in Christianity, Bethlehem, Calvary, and Pentecost. Bethlehem and Calvary and Pentecost. This means Bethlehem means God with us. Calvary means God for us. And Pentecost, God in us. God with us, God for us, and God in us. Of course, we just saw in chapter, we haven't read, but from last week, we ended in verse 11 in chapter 1, we have the, the coming of the Holy Spirit and coming upon the 120 in the upper room, and people are asking, what does this mean? What does it mean, the coming of the Holy Spirit? So let's, let's review very quickly from last week to today's uh, topic. In chapter 1, verse 12, as, as they, were, they saw that Jesus ascended and went back to Jerusalem, and they were waiting another 10 days. I'm not sure if they knew it was going to be 10 days or not. But they recognized that Judas was not part of them anymore, and they had to replace Judas. And they, this story here, how they came to Matthias to be the, the 12th apostle. And then they're praying, and I'm sure they're studying Scripture in the upper room. Uh, I'm sure they're looking at the Old Testament in new eyes now, through the eyes of Jesus. What does it say in the Old Testament about Jesus? And they're praying, and they're, and they're studying the Bible for these 10 days together. And on this day of Pentecost, which is a festival day in Jerusalem and, and the Jewish culture, calendar, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. You're familiar with that in chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 13. And, and they start speaking in tongues. And apparently these were tongues of languages, known languages that they had not studied before. And people who had gathered, Pentecost was one of the three major festivals and feasts of the Jewish faith. And if you were a male within 60 miles of Jerusalem, you were required to go to all three. Uh, if you're a woman, you'd come if you could. And if you were beyond 60 miles, you'd come if you could. Now, not everybody did, but we see in the list people from all over the Roman Empire, Jews, had come to Jerusalem. Jerusalem at least tripled, if not quadrupled in size during the, these festivals, Pentecost. So we had Jews from all around the known world there, and they're listed there. And they, some say, well, what's going on? And some say, oh, they're just drunk. And Peter says, it's not o'clock in the morning. We're not drunk. <laughs> no one does that unless you really are drunk. 
Uh, so, but he's, so in verse 12, they were all amazed, the people, and perplexed, and said to one another, what does this mean? What, what is going on? What's the meaning of this commotion, of this hearing, this good news about Jesus in our mother tongue? That's interesting. Then Peter stands up in verse 14 and gives us this great sermon that I read. Now, the sermon I read, I don't know, maybe a minute and a half. I don't know how long it took. Uh, I'm sure Peter didn't preach for a minute and a half. I'm sure Peter probably preached two hours or three hours. And Luke is condensing it to this minute and a half for our benefit, the major, major points. So the, the question is, here in, the, in verse uh, 12, people are saying, what does this mean? Well, it means three things at least. It means, first of all, Joel's prophecy has come true. Now, like a good Bible preacher, Peter has a text. He has several texts. In fact, he has three texts in his sermon here. His first text is from Joel chapter 2. Now, we're not really sure when Joel prophesied. He's an Old Testament prophet, one of the so-called minor prophets because his book is short. We're not sure if he preached in the 6th century B.C. or the 5th century B.C. or the 4th century B.C. We're not really sure. We know nothing about Joel except his book, that he was a prophet. We really can't place him exactly, but nevertheless, he is a prophet of God, and he had a great prophecy. Uh, we, we see here in, in verse uh, 17 is the text that Peter is using for his sermon. And again, let's look at verse 17, and he is quoting Joel. He's reading the text. He, he, he probably said, would you please stand and honor God's word? And they did. And he's he read these words of Joel out, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now, I remind you, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit existed, of course. The Holy Spirit mostly came upon individuals for service and left them, kind of came on and left them. With one exception that I know of, the Holy Spirit did not reside in a person, on a person for their whole life. The Holy Spirit usually came upon a prophet, came upon a king, usually. If I'm not mistaken, it says that the Holy Spirit came upon David and is with David the rest of his life. That's most unusual. The Holy Spirit came and went, came and went, using power for service. Now, we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But he says, in these last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, the day of Pentecost. That's what's... Peter is saying this is what's happening. Joel's prophecy is coming true. Now, on a side note, this is not the main point of the sermon. On a side note, uh, people are always talking about eschatology, about last things, the coming of Jesus, uh, you know, the second coming. And when people talk to you and say, are we in the last days? Are we in the last days? Say yes. We've been in the last days since 2,000 years ago. When Peter preached, Peter is saying the prophecy of Joel in these last days, God will pour out his spirit. We've been the last days for 2,000 years. And it may be 2,000 years more or maybe 2,000 seconds. I don't know. Anytime. But Peter is saying Joel's prophecy has come true today in these last days. In this day, I will pour out my spirit in all flesh. And you're seeing this. Then he says, verse 20, the sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes. The great day of the Lord. We see that oftentimes in Old Testament prophecy. And that really kind of, from the New Testament perspective, it really is a second coming. The great day of the Lord when Jesus comes back. That great and magnificent day 
come back in glory, come back in judgment. Verse 21, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls him the Lord shall be saved. Israel, ever since the time of Joel, whether it's 4th century or 5th century or 6th century B.C., whenever that was, ever since that, they know this prophecy. And then looking forward to that day when God will put his, whole, his spirit on all flesh, young and old, male and female, bastards and servants, everybody. What a, a glorious day that will be. They were looking forward to this. We'll get ready to enter into what we call the Christmas season, the Advent season. Another parenthetical comment. I've been in stores this week hearing Christmas music already. Uh, okay. Uh, let's, let's get things in order. Let's get Thanksgiving over with first. Okay, that's, that's a personal thing. Sorry. Um, but do you remember when you were a child, especially after Thanksgiving, looking forward to Christmas? That one month lasted five years. Did it not? Our, oh, boy. And now it, it takes about five seconds. But, but we remember looking forward to Christmas or even looking forward to your birthday. That little granddaughter, Kaylin, she just turned three uh, this Wednesday, and she's been told a week ahead of time about her birthday coming. I'm not sure she fully understood that, except she understands presents, and presents are coming. So I'm not sure she fully understands the birthday thing yet, but she got a lot of presents. But she was looking forward to that day, and she understands, I'm not sure what she understands about Santa Claus, but she understands there's more presents coming at Christmas. So we're anticipating that. You mothers, do you remember when you were anticipating the delivery of your baby? Waiting and waiting, anticipating that due date whenever he or she arrives, looking forward to that day. Where here in Acts 2, Peter is saying that day has arrived that Joel talked about. The Holy Spirit has come today to dwell, indwell in believers. Joel's prophecy has been fulfilled. Since Pentecost, since this day of Pentecost, almost 2,000 years ago, all Christians have the Holy Spirit. For the moment of conversion, the moment you trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and you receive Christ, you receive the Father, you receive the Spirit in your life, you have the Holy Spirit. This is different before Pentecost, as I mentioned earlier. Holy Spirit is different. Since Pentecost, every believer receives the Holy Spirit. Not a second experience later, but gets the Holy Spirit. Now, just... Let me remind you what Moses said, and you can just listen to this. This is Numbers chapter 11, beginning at verse 26. Uh, Numbers, of course, they're in the wilderness, and they're getting the laws from God and information, looking toward the promised land. But in Numbers eleven twenty-six, listen to this. Now, two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad, another named Medad, and the Spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent. And they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Oh, no. And Joshua, son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to them, here it is, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them? That'd be great, Moses is saying. Why are you complaining that... They're a prophet, they're prophesying, and taking any kind of glory from me. No, don't worry about that. I wish all of you had the Spirit. I wish all of you would prophesy. Well, that's come true. Moses saw this day of Pentecost, and that's what's happened. Everyone can prophesy. Everyone has the Spirit of God in him and on him. That is now 
fulfilled. For the moment of conversion, we all have the Holy Spirit. We have received eternal life. Now, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. If you don't have, we see that in the book of Acts later on, another thing. But verse 21 says, anyone, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. More about the word Lord in just a moment. So really, the question is not, do you, not that, do you have the Holy Spirit, but does the Holy Spirit have you? That's the main question. So what does this mean? This means, first of all, Joel's prophecy has come true. Second, it means God raised Jesus up from the dead. Look at verse 22 and 28. Peter continues. Then of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. In other words, this was done in a corner. You know about this. This Jesus delivered up, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, delivered up to Pilate, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosened the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be healed by it. He goes to his next text here. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Well, he's saying, you guys know all about this Jesus thing. Jesus has been in your midst for the last three and a half years. And 50 days ago, you crucified him. You all know this. The whole town knows this. And if you weren't here, you heard about it. Everybody knows of this Jesus that he was crucified. And I'm sure there was some, some rumors or some talk about Jesus being risen from the dead, ever what that means. But you know about his mighty works. You saw his mighty works. You saw his wonders, his signs, his miracles. You all saw, you know who this Jesus guy is. But it was God's plan to have him crucified. In fact, you, it's emphatic, you crucified him. God's man, according to God's plan. That seems kind of some tension there, but that's all true. And then he starts quoting from Psalm 16, and this is David's prophecy. Let me just read for you Psalm 16, 8 to 11, of what David says. This is a Psalm of David. Um, verse 8 through 11, David writes, I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, I'm not sure if David was really writing about himself or by, led by the Spirit, writing about Jesus, was prophesying about Jesus to come about a thousand years later. He's talking about David. David's talking about the death of Jesus, about his crucifixion, about his resurrection. You know, so many of us, I mean humans, we take pilgrimages to tombs to see some revered one. Of course, our Muslim friends go to Mecca and Medina to see the tomb of Muhammad. That's, that's a big deal. Muhammad is, is the last and greatest prophet in their view, and what an act of devotion is to go and see his tomb where he is buried. 
And also there's a tomb of Buddha. Now we're not really sure if Buddha actually exists or not, but nevertheless it has a tomb and they go to it to revere Buddha and who he was and what he taught. All kind of famous saints throughout church history, there are people going pilgrimages to go and see the tomb of this great saint. And at Westminster Cathedral there in London, uh, there are buried many famous Brits, Englishmen there. there and some are just have plaques, but some actually are buried there in Westminster Abbey. And you go and kind of uh, revere these great men and women uh, of, of the nation. And even in our country, we have like uh, JFK is buried in Arlington, have the eternal flame. And people go by the thousands and millions to see his grave, to, to see that. Uh, some years ago, uh, Karen and I went to um, see, up in Washington, really, Arlington, to see George Washington's place, uh, Mount Vernon, just to visit. That was, that was exciting. Uh, Washington is a hero of mine. And there, down the hill a bit from the, the, the house is the graveyard. And he's in a mausoleum, he and his wife, and you can, there's iron bars, you can kind of look in and see the tomb of, uh, of George and Martha Washington. That's exciting to me. Now, why, why do we do this? Why do we go to the tomb of Muhammad or to, to JFK or to Washington or even to our relatives we go to their graveside? Well, I think we kind of go to uh, for reverence. We kind of go to maybe touch the past. It was exciting just to see the tomb where Washington lays. I mean, you can't see the body, of course, but you're close to the real man. And we just kind of a little bit of awe and touch the past, but um, there's nothing wrong with any of that. But my point here is, why is there no pilgrimages to Jesus' tomb? We have two billion people in the world today claim they follow Jesus, claim the name of Jesus in some way or the other, but we don't go to his tomb. Well, let me back up on that for a second. We do go, but he's not there. When Karen and I were in Israel a couple years ago, there's a, a, a big church of the Holy Sepulchre. It, it's, it's an amazing place. It's kind of a weird place. Uh, and there's several different sites in that big, big building. But in one part of the building is a little smaller building that supposedly is the, uh, the tomb or the, 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 the cave, if you will, where Jesus was buried. And many people have a pilgrimage and go there. Sometimes there's a long line waiting to go just to walk in and see an empty space. <laughs> uh, also, and that's been there for, for years and years and years, since the, uh, I don't know when it was, since probably the early ages. But outside of the Damascus gate, maybe 200 yards outside the gate to the east of Jerusalem is the garden tomb. And that was one of the highlights of my, our trip, I think, in, in Israel. Um, it's a, a beautiful garden. I won't go to the story. I need to tell that story later. But there's, there's a, a tomb cut out of the side here. And as our guy was talking about this, he never said that is the tomb of Jesus. He never said that. But after he was through this spiel, uh, I talked to him and I said, you never said that is Jesus' tomb. He says, yes, but if it's, that's not his tomb, it's here somewhere in the area. I said, okay, <laughs> that's good. I mean, it's not definitive, but it sure matches the biblical description. I'll have a talk about one day. But that was exciting. That probably was. It was discovered in the late 1800s. That probably was the real tomb of Jesus that is empty. And this is, it really described well in the Bible. It really fits that passage well. But we go there. You look inside. Nobody's there. Either place, no one is there. 
he has risen from the dead. Now, again, here in, in Psalm 16, this Old Testament prophecy again, the coming of the Holy Spirit shows that Jesus is God's man. Because he was resurrected from the dead, that shows God had his hand on him, had his support, had his endorsement. What Jesus said and did has my approval because I have raised him from the dead. The coming of the Holy Spirit shows that Jesus is God's man because he raised him and sent us the Holy Spirit. That kind of goes together. This, this death and burial and resurrection and appearances and ascension and coming of the Holy Spirit, it's kind of all one thing. Kind of a Jesus event, you might say. The Holy Spirit's presence and ministry in the believers then and today is proof of Jesus' resurrection. You recognize that you are proof of Jesus' resurrection? Because you have the Spirit in you. The Spirit would not be in you unless Jesus had been raised from the dead. You're a walking testimony. You're a walking evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. You and me both. So what does this mean? Well, it means Joel's prophecies come true. It means God raised Jesus up. And third, Jesus now is both Lord and Christ. Look at verse 29 and following. Peter continues, Brothers and sisters, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and is still with us today. Hey, you can see it over there. There's his tomb. That's where David's buried. He can almost say that. Therefore, being a prophet, David being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, a covenant God gave to David, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne forever, he said. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ and that he was not abandoned to Hades or the place of the dead or Sheol in the Old Testament, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and we're all witnesses of that. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. That's what it means. For David did not ascend to heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. And let the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The great King David. I mean, if, if you went to the first century here and talked with the regular Jews of the day, give, give me a top ten list of, of most important Jews, most important Hebrews, so forth. Abraham's one of them, Moses is one of them, and David's one of them. I mean, those are the top three. Uh, you can list others. But David is a great man, the house of David, and out of, out of David will come the Messiah from his line. But his tomb is here. David died. He's like a man like you and me, and he died. What The thing last night, we had King David, he sinned nine, what is it, nine times or something you said, or fell nine, seven times. You know, he was a, he was a man of flesh and blood. He, he was not perfect. He was a great man, but he messed up big time. He messed up bigger than I've messed up. But God still honored him. But he was a great man, a great king. This was the golden, the golden age of Israel was when David and Solomon were kings. But David's tomb's over there. And we visit it regularly because we revere him and, and we want to honor him and honor what God did through him. But he's dead. And his body has seen corruption. It's gone from ashes to ashes and dust to dust. But Jesus is a fulfillment of David's prophecy in Psalm 16, I read. 
David prophesied about Jesus, and guys, this is fulfilled today. That's what Peter's saying. You are witnessing history, he's saying. This is what happened. This is what's, what it means today. In fact, verse 32, where witnesses all this? 120 of us. And you are too, really, for that matter. Verse 33, Jesus has been exalted. The Father of the Holy Spirit has poured out. That's what you're seeing and hearing. Today is the Holy Spirit being sent by the Father. Then verse 36, it says that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Now listen, it means, it means declared, you know, set forth. Listen to what Paul says this in Romans 1, verses 1 to 4, the, the prologue of the letter to the Romans. Let's listen what uh, Paul is saying about Jesus. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus, who was ascended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The resurrection declares, makes known, certifies that Jesus is the Lord and Christ. That's what he says here. Both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now let's talk about that for a second, Lord and Christ. These are, these are so much part of our church vocabulary, we miss the significance of those. The word Christ means anointed one. The Hebrew word is Messiah, the Greek word is Christ. They mean the same thing. And they really mean anointed one. And usually that meant a prophet was anointed by God. He was a Messiah. And especially kings were anointed. Their oils poured on by some priest, high priest or whatever. He was anointed. He was appointed. He was picked out by God. He was a Messiah, an anointed one. Now, that all leads us to the anointed one, Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Now, we talk about Lord, and Lord here means more than just master. Uh, in today's English culture, we'd say sir. You know, who are you, sir? We say, who are you, Lord? Uh, it's kind of like the old uh, the British governor. How you doing, governor? Like, you're above me. You're, you're kind of the boss. And Lord does mean that, but it means much more than that. In the Old Testament, who was Lord? Yahweh. Yahweh was Lord. Remember when the, the prophets of Baal uh, were being tested by Elijah? And after Elijah, God brought the fire down through Elijah, and the people bowed down. Yahweh is Lord. Yahweh is Lord. Yahweh is Lord. Yahweh is God. He's the God. He's the true God. Yahweh is God. So the Lord in the Old Testament really meant Yahweh. It meant the God of creation, God of, of Israel. But in the think with me, with the, the, the contemporary time of Jesus in the Roman Empire, who was Lord in the Roman Empire? It was Caesar. Caesar was the Lord. In fact, he was earlier, Julius Caesar and Augustus, they were considered a son of God. And once they died, well, they were kind of sort of divinity. Once they died, they became a son of God. Till later on in the Roman Empire, toward Domitian and others, they started to call themselves God now, God in the flesh now. But during the time of Jesus, who was Lord was Caesar. So when the early church said, Jesus is Lord, I want you to understand what they're saying. They're saying Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. That's pretty radical. That's pretty countercultural. That's kind of a political statement, you know, saying that. 
We don't understand that today. I don't know how we can translate that into our experience today. But by saying that Jesus is Lord, He is God, and He is above Caesar. This is pretty radical. So imagine with me that the crowd's understanding to what they've been hearing. These, these thousands of Jewish men in particular, but Jewish women too, and probably children, listening to Peter and to the other apostles preaching this morning. As they're giving this, this testimony and looking at Joel, look at, at, at the Psalms, what David said, and you can imagine what they are hearing, and I'm sure they're dumbfounded. These were good Jews. These are Jew, especially Jewish men. These are Jews who had come a long ways to come celebrate the Passover, the Pentecost festival. So these weren't nominal Jews, if you will. These are serious about it, coming to Jerusalem, to the temple, to celebrate this festival. And they're hearing that it's God's plan that the resurrection happened with Jesus. Now, again, when John 11, when Jesus went to the grave, uh, went to see Lazarus after he died, and both Mary and Martha said, man, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. And he says to Martha, do you believe you'll see your brother again? And she said, yes, at the last day. The theology of the day was at the last day of history, God will resurrect everyone, Daniel 12, 1 and 2, some to corruption and some for eternal life. So the thought was God will resurrect the righteous in this case on the last day. But for someone to be resurrected before the last day was not a paradigm they could think about. To hear that Jesus, an individual, was resurrected before the last day, before the day of history, it was incomprehensible. That's why they had a hard time. But the hearing that, that Jesus was crucified by you and that he was raised from the dead, that, that blew them away. This is God's plan, though. This was Jesus is God's anointed one. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He's the one the Old Testament's pointing to. And they're hearing all this. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And Peter stops there. What a great sermon. He gives it out, and he stops there. He didn't say a thing. He's not a good Baptist giving an invitation, just, just as I am. The buses will wait. Come on down, whatever the case is. Another joke you didn't get. Okay. Um, I'll work better next week. Um, but let's continue on, verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, the congregation, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? You laid a heavy burden on us. My goodness. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent. Literally means change your thinking. Change your thinking about who Jesus is. And therefore, change your attitude. And there be baptized, a water baptism, identify with Jesus, identify with his church. And this is the beginning of following Jesus. This day of Pentecost, it was a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the whole house. Uh, divided tongues kind of rested upon each of them and rested on them. They began speaking in other tongues. And the people started asking, what does this mean? It means that Jesus is Lord and Christ. 
It means the Holy Spirit indwells each and every believer and also says that God's plan is coming to pass. What shall we do? Repent and be baptized. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Dr. Luke's writing, condensing uh, this morning and early afternoon sermon that Peter and the other 11 gave. Uh, we thank you for the great message here of, of uh, prophecy being fulfilled and your spirit coming and, and living in us and on us from this point on. Thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit at conversion. What does this mean? It means you're active, you're on the move, you're pushing your plan forward to the consummation. We love you, Father. Use us in your kingdom's work. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing, please. Jesus paid it all. <laughs>